Why, hello there, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty. This is Jenny. I'm here on my fantastic new microphone. I hope you all like it. It'll be a little bit less popping and buzzing for me, uh, since I have this super schnazzy new mic. And uh, it's going to be helping me guide you through the exciting world of archaeology, history, and all other things cool and fun to talk about uh, today. And today, I think we have a pretty exciting episode planned. We're talking about death. Uh, not like deep existential, what's the meaning of life, what's the meaning of death type of thing. It's more of like a cool things about death in archaeology uh, episode. It, um, I guess it comes from this article I found on, uh, it's a German magazine online called Der Spiegel Magazine Online. Uh, not to be confused with Der Schmiegel Magazine. Uh, In-depth talk on all things Gollum. Uh, <laughs> no, this one is a, a the, this article was translated by Paul Cohen. And it's called The Hangman's Tale, Archaeologist Digs into History of Execution. And it's about the recent discovery of 70 skeletons outside of Alkirschleben, Germany, that were found in a pit believed to be uh, basically a big pit full of medieval execution victims from the 14th century. And I guess in that, in Alkirschleben, in the 14th century, that would have made them criminals of the Kvernberg court which was run by the Counts of Schwarzburg. Uh, so, you know, uh, they, they must have been uh, efficient at all things execution, and uh, that's why they have uh, so many uh, victims uh, found in the pit. You know, they go, they go boom and fall down and they go in the pit. <laughs> that was my terrible German accent. Uh, <laughs> anyway, these 70 remains are being analyzed at the Thuringia State Office for the Preservation of Monuments. And the primary uh, scientist is Marita Genesis, who is a former model turned archaeologist who specializes in execution sites, which I thought sounded pretty darn fun. Uh, so maybe when I do my dissertation, I'll be, I'll be another one of those, you know, former model slash actors turned archaeologist who specializes in execution sites like the Marita Genesis lady who I'm sure biological anthropologists everywhere are very jealous of because she's got some pretty interesting stuff to investigate right now. Uh, these, the remains of these 70 people uh, indicate all types of injuries known to result from various styles of execution practiced in the Middle Ages for a bevy of criminal activity. And they appear to have been unceremoniously discarded or left behind after their deaths due to the disdain with which they were regarded at the end of their lives. And there's some pretty interesting case studies here. One victim was left with their limbs still bound. Another was tossed in there with an iron strangulation chain, which is probably how they were killed. And a third was uh, put in there with a really sharp blade, which was probably the murder weapon as well. I like the mindset here. You kill them, and then you don't reuse the murderer stuff. You just toss them in with there, so that, like, 500 years later, archaeologists aren't confused, you know. 
pretty much just put it all out there. <laughs> and, well, it's, it's good because this is probably the only evidence that would ever come forward to help explain what happened to those people because there's not a lot of records um, that exist concerning the practice of execution past, like, the verdict of you gonna die, you know? So, uh, we know, obviously, that in medieval history, there were a lot of beheadings and there were a lot of hangings, but some of these other alternative execution methods really aren't well documented. So, the archaeology is, like, the only chance we ever get to learn about them. So, this is actually a pretty good find as far as our knowledge of these things goes. Ooh, hit my hand there. Sorry, I was hand-talking because I got so into it, you know? I'm not Italian. I, I'm Dutch and Scottish, but I, I'm from New York. I lived with a really big uh, Brooklynite for a couple of years. I think I inherited some of his, like, Italian, you know, use guys like can't talk and stuff, you know. So, uh, sorry about that. I'll try to keep the, uh, sound effects down from now on. So, anyway, back to these execution victims. Uh, I think <laughs> if these guys, made, the ones that they're studying now, made it to their grave with all of their body parts still intact, uh, except for their heads, for a couple of them, they were most likely the lucky ones, since executioners were known to take part in the trade of corpses and body parts for medical study or the concoction of magic remedies and spells. So I guess it was pretty common for people who no one really cared about at that point, criminals of the state and whatnot, to have been kind of dismembered and, you know, sort of spread throughout the land to do good wherever they could. Anyway, so yeah, there was a lot of that going on, which is kind of nasty. But apparently uh, a lot of these people were just sort of taken out and uh, done with and then tossed in the pit, which sounds like a lovely way to go. So uh, the article, did I mention who it was by? I don't think I did. It's by Matthias Schultz, Matthias Schultz, uh, the Der Spiegel online consultant. It goes on to talk about the lonely life of the executioner for a bit. They were largely ostracized by society for their dirty work and dealings with dead bodies, which was kind of like taboo, you know? Uh, they were apparently also really good at performing medical procedures having to do with amputation and castration, though I can't imagine why. <laughs> uh, they didn't just kill people either. They were so misunderstood. They tortured and maimed as well. Sometimes they resorted to the wheel, where prisoners' limbs and ribs were broken so they could be weaved through the spokes of a large wheel and put on display in the town square. They also, you know, went to do good old-fashioned drawn quartering, where the limbs were ripped off of their bodies by horses running in four opposite directions while attached to each of them. Sometimes they put a fifth one in there for the head. Not always, but if you were lucky. Uh, and then there was the always delightful disembowelment, a la William Wallace. Such was the risk of being a bad boy or girl in the Middle Ages. You know, I always used to think it'd be really fun to be alive in the Middle Ages. Like, you know, I love history. I read Philippa Gregory and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, that'd be so cool. I could wear my hair in braids all the time and be like Robin Hood everywhere. But now, I don't think so. Not so much. Nope. Uh, I'm, I'm good. I think I'm good staying in the 21st century, so. Not a lot of drawing and quartering going on nowadays. Not a lot of disembowelments, you know, here and there. But for the most part, it's, uh, 
you know, just good old-fashioned jail time. And I think I'd probably prefer that. Especially with all the witch burning, you know? Not very pleasant, that. Not at all. What makes you think she's a witch? Well, she's turned me into a newt! A newt. We got better. Well, well, Monty Python's Middle Ages, of course, I would have totally rocked. Speaking of, Spamalot, awesome musical. I saw it on Broadway when it came out. Tim Curry as King Arthur, brilliant. Sarah Ramirez as the Lady of the Lake. Oh my gosh. For those of you Grey's Anatomy fans who don't know, Sarah Ramirez, a.k.a. Callie Torres, not just a doctor on television, also a Tony Award-winning kick-butt-singing actor on the Broadway stage. She's awesome. Uh, But anyway, enough of that. We were talking about what archaeology helps us uncover about the details of this type of stuff, uh, like executions and stuff like that. Uh, For instance, here's an example. You learn a lot from archaeology. You would think that chopping people's heads off or hanging them, uh, those two would have been pretty much the executioner's mainstay in the Middle Ages, so they'd be, like, really good at it. But it's not always the case. We see in archaeology sometimes skeletons from that period that reveal very clearly that the blow intended to cut at the neck of an individual with a halberd or something when they're cutting their head off Uh, Sometimes it missed, (laughs) didn't quite hit its mark, and instead it chopped, like, through the middle of their back or through their skull instead. (laughs) Yeah. And sometimes in hangings, when the gallows weren't tall enough, the victims would uh, unfortunately miss out on the quick death of a broken neck from the fall and instead die slowly of asphyxiation instead. So, yeah, things did not always go smoothly for our poor old executioner and even more unfortunately for his victims. So anyway, now I guess more and more archeological sites related to medieval execution and torture, punishment, stuff like that are being uncovered in Europe and studied for also the larger social implications they held for the period and for individual stories of the condemned. Uh, So we got a lot of questions like, there's this woman who was unearthed in a ditch near an execution site in Selchow whose head was found laying on her lower leg, but she was completely missing her neck. So what the heck happened there? Or there's a man uh, whose body was found near the mass grave in Alkerschleben, who had been buried under a thick layer of stone so that it was impossible for him to escape his grave, which I guess was a popular way uh, in the Middle Ages of trying to stop vampires from rising from the dead. So was this individual believed to be a vampire? Perhaps. And not the sparkly kind, either. And uh, for those of you interested in medieval punishment, I also suggest doing some research on the bog bodies of Northern Europe. And if you listened last week, I'm sure you noticed at the end of the podcast, I kind of threw out there, just off the top of my head, hey, maybe I'll talk about bog bodies, hey. And I found it odd that they totally, like, played into this whole story about execution. So, what the heck? I'm going to talk about bog bodies, too. So, yeah. Bog bodies are freaking insane. It's 
kind of a miracle of the natural world that the conditions exist in certain places for the natural preservation of the organic material of the body. And as most of you know, mummification, which is another form, is famous for its use by ancient Egyptians. That idea was actually inspired by the natural mummification of bodies buried in the hot, dry desert sands early in Egyptian history. And so that's one of the conditions for natural preservation, hot, dry. And uh, if you're into history and archaeology, then you, uh, of course, know who Atsi the Iceman is. He's a famous naturally preserved mummy from the Chalcolithic or Copper Age, found in a glacier between Italy and Austria. Uh, So yeah, extreme cold is another, usually a good preserver. And then the other common situation is when you become waterlogged in a place with the right chemical conditions and a lack of air and humidity. And the bog bodies are the example of this third process. They come usually from peat bogs in England and Northern Europe. And for a body to be preserved like this, it has to be deposited. There have to be like perfect conditions. It has to be thrown in there in a cold time of the year when the body tissue can be saturated with acid and bacteria can be prevented from growing before the decay would naturally begin. So the body has to be pretty fresh when it's thrown in there. Yeah. Uh, It's also important in the bog for there to be peat actively growing at the time because it's the rotting of the old peat underneath the new that creates humic acid. And that acts like a vinegar in the pickling process. Uh, It basically just pickles bodies, I guess. (laughs) Odd side note, the night my mother went into labor with me, they were in the movie theater with my grandmother watching Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, which is probably why it's my favorite Star Wars movie. Can you believe that? Seriously. And anyway, she went into labor during the movie, but she was only having contractions. So they went home, and then she kept having contractions all night long, but they needed something to do. So they pickled for like six hours straight or something like that. They made pickles. So, and oddly enough, my aunt in Michigan also lived right next to a pickle factory. So whenever I used to go visit her at her house, her and my uncle, Cappy, uh, the entire neighborhood smelled like pickles. So yeah, those are my connections to the pickling process. I hope you enjoyed this interlude from Jenny, queen of the random interlude. So back to the pickling of bodies. It's basically the combination of acid and an anaerobic environment and the cold that pretty much equals the death of organisms that help in decomposition and a concentration of aldehyde and organic acids for the preservation. In fact, it works so well in these cases that it also conserves hair, clothing, leather, and rope. And all of these things have been found preserved on the bodies. Well, not everybody. A lot of them are naked. And it's maybe because they might have been thrown in naked or their clothes might have disintegrated and their bodies were left behind. So, we don't know. But it's all this stuff that we find with the bodies that gives us the biggest clues as to why they ended up dead in a bog. (laughs) And unfortunately, most of them also seem to be victims of human sacrifice or execution. Mm, fun times. So yeah, in 1965, a German scientist named Alfred Dieck, Dick, Dyke, something like that. You have an unfortunate name, Mr. Doctor. Sorry. Uh, anyway, Alfred, as we will call him from now on, 
uh, claimed that there were 1,850 bog bodies in existence. But we're pretty sure he just made most of those up. So at the moment, there are 53 in existence. And uh, those are actually just the surviving ones. There have been more, but uh, several uh, specimens have been destroyed by the rapid decomposition of their bodies when they're improperly removed from their boggy environments for study and people expose them to the natural atmosphere, not realizing the chemical effects it's going to have on it. So, unfortunately, that happens. So the oldest specimen is a woman from Denmark, dating to 8000 BC, which is old. And the youngest specimens are actually Russian and German soldiers from World War I and II that died fighting on the Eastern Front. And apparently they were fighting in bogs. I don't know why you fight in bogs, but they did. There's also, um, I'll put a picture up on my website of, it's a 22-year-old Russian pilot from World War II named Boris Lazarev that crashed his hurricane fighter plane into the bog in 1943 and was found preserved very well in northeastern, I'm sorry, northwestern Russia. So yeah, um, that I think is the youngest bog body um, that we have. I'm just talking about ones from northern Europe. There's also apparently uh, in Florida, we have uh, another example from a settlement of a bunch of bodies that have been pretty well preserved in, in, in like a little bog down there. But, and then there's also, you know, a lot of other natural mummification victims, especially in South America, in the Andes. They used to put human sacrifices up on the top of mountains where they died and were preserved by the, the arid, dry environment up there. And I'll, I'll put a picture of one of them up on the website too, so check it out. And for those of you who plan on checking out my website blog for this entry, just be um, warned the images of these bog bodies and mummies are, you know, they're hard to take for normal people. So if you're sensitive to that type of thing, don't go to the website and check it out. Don't Google image it. I would only recommend doing that if you're ready to handle the sight of dead people. You know, they're very well preserved, which is why it's a little bit harder to view for someone. Anyway, so yeah, we're, oh yeah, we're talking about examples of these bodies, but I'm, I'm sticking to the Northern European ones, just so you know. The majority of them come from the European Iron Age, which spans usually between about 800 BC to the Roman era, the beginning of the Roman era in the first century AD, um, and in some places until the end of the Roman era in the fifth century. So uh, most of these bodies show signs of being really messed up. They're beaten, stabbed, tortured, hanged, strangled, or beheaded. Some of the bog bodies actually, they think, may have been members of the upper class, which is indicated by um, they can do chemical tests to see what type of foods they're eating if they had an upper class diet. And then they are maybe more well-groomed. They have better hair, better nails, you know, got the latest mani-pedi, that type of thing. So um, if there's lower class and upper class victims thrown in here together, it actually probably does indicate that they were execution victims because just because you're rich, you can still be executed if you've committed some sort of crime. And as for the people that they think were sacrificial victims, uh, I guess, especially in the early Iron Age and before then in Northern Europe, these type of areas, the bogs, were considered 
like supernatural places where you could commune with the gods. Uh, if you listen to Eddie Izzard, it's like Salisbury Plain, you know, it's kind of like, ah, uh, <laughs> uh, you have to watch Eddie Izzard to get that. But yeah, they were just oogie boogie places. So a lot of the times they may have some sort of religious rituals that happened there. So it might be the ideal place for human sacrifice if you were into that type of thing. And so they, uh, the fact that they have um, some high-value items that were, like, offerings put in the bogs with the bodies does tend to indicate that that may have been their purpose there, so. And then there are other random reasons, too. You never know why someone gets thrown in a bog. There's a medieval woman from Ireland who's actually believed to have been thrown in there because she committed suicide. At least that's what her body indicates. And at the time, that was pretty taboo. You couldn't be buried in a church cemetery if you'd done that. And so those victims were, you know, <laughs> tossed to the curb, sister. So, yeah. And uh, these cases are pretty awesome as far as the opportunity that scientists get to study these different aspects of past people's lives that you don't usually get to study when all you have is an archaeological site with their belongings, or maybe just their skeleton, but to have that actual person in front of you with all of their soft tissue, if they have clothing, belongings, stuff like that. Um, it's, it's pretty exciting. Um, you know, you get to see stuff like clothing, you get to study part of their body chemistry that maybe doesn't survive on just a skeleton, and maybe DNA as well. Any type of modifications they were doing to their skin or soft tissue, injuries that maybe they had on their soft tissue that you can't tell when you just have bones in front of you. Like, I know there's one of the bog bodies, they weren't sure how he had died. I think it's the one with the really red hair that I have a picture of. They weren't sure how he had died until they flipped his body over and they saw that the back of his neck had been slashed like a huge big slash in his skin, but you wouldn't have seen that on his bone unless it went all the way down to the bone. So, you know, it's good for stuff like that too. Just the study of the demographics of what type of people you're finding being executed or tossed in the bog for other reasons gives you indications of social relationships between people and the way that they viewed a um, method of death and identity. So there's a lot of different a lot of different stuff you can learn from them. But of course it shouldn't really be forgotten and just because I go at this stuff kind of off the cuff and I can, you know, I try and joke a little bit, I don't want it to ever be, you know, misread that these aren't real people because they are. They sh they're real people. They should be treated with reverence in their death and especially because we know of such the, the horrible way that their lives ended. <laughs> they should they should get some respect. Some respect. All right? Definitely, I'm going to put pictures up because I think if you are interested, it's beneficial, but don't, like, send them to all your Facebook friends gawking at them and stuff. That's, that's just mean. Don't be mean. Okay. So, and if you want to search some of these famous examples, some of the, the most, more well-known bog people include the Toland Man, uh, the Grobel Man, the Lindau Man, and the Yida Girl. Uh, so check them out. I'm going to put most of those guys up on on the blog and uh, do your own research. It's a really fascinating aspect of, 
of uh, history. And um, a lot of it's medieval periods, so if you're into the medieval period, there you go. It's a good place to start to learn about the crappy things that people do to one another. Woo! <laughs> and with that, I end my treatise on the death of people in the Middle Ages thrown into bogs. The end. And with that, we are going to move on to this week's shorty news. Shorty news. And when I'm looking through news stuff on in archaeology websites, I always, like, I don't know, I get attracted to weird things, which I feel like need to be mentioned in shorty news. So this week's comes from an article from space.com called Space Archaeologists Call for Preserving Off-Earth Artifacts by Leonard David. And I'm just going to start off with his beginning quote because I think it's, it's a gem. When it comes to preserving history, a group of archaeologists and historians are hoping to boldly go where no archaeologist has gone before. Really original, Mr. David. Anyway, it's about space archaeology. And what doesn't sound more exciting than space archaeology, okay? So, this is about basically a panel at the recent SAA conference in Honolulu, Hawaii, that began a debate about how to deal with the cultural landscape of space, as now man-made objects can be found on the moon and orbiting the cosmos as representatives of human cultural heritage and the relationship of man to time and space, they should be preserved and protected for future archaeological inquiry. I'm not lying. People are really thinking about this stuff. I mean, with all, like, the tens of thousands of years of human history on Earth that we still haven't had time to study, they're really, really worried about, like, the two things we left on the moon. So, anyway... The impetus for this conversation is most likely coming from the reevaluation of efforts to make NASA's Apollo space landing site on the moon a national historic landmark, as the site, founded in the 1969 moon landing by Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, is set to turn 50 years old in 2019. And archaeologists usually start the process of heritage preservation after something is 50 years old when they've agreed that things generally usually considered just to be regular old stuff magically become artifacts of the past worthy of protection and scientific study. So the debate also, part of the reason it's in the news is because it brings to the forefront the question of how to deal with areas in the universe which can't be claimed solely significant to one nation on Earth. Uh, yeah, no one denies that the materials left on the moon from the 69 landing belong to the United States. But if we claim the site as a national historic landmark for America, it could be seen as an act claiming sovereignty over the moon, which is prohibited by the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which I previously did not know existed, but I'm glad that I've learned. And the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 prohibits such acts as claiming ownership over the moon or any other celestial body. It's a good thing they wrote that out. I'm, I'm glad we know that. So, nevertheless, Mr. Joe Reynolds, or Ms. Joe Reynolds, could be, I don't know, of Clemson University, claims that there is a human archaeological site 223,000 miles away that needs preservation, and that is all that they are trying to do. So, what do you do 
in situations like this anyway. You look for precedent from previously dealt with stuff, right? So in this case, there actually are other culturally significant areas in neutral zones like Antarctica and uh, the deep seas in international waters where, well, in Antarctica at least, um, sites like the base camps of the explorations of the early 20th century are protected by acts like the New Zealand Antarctic Heritage Act, which preserves the concept of res communis, or public domain, while recognizing the cultural significance of the site. Now, Alice Gorman of Flinders University in Australia also wants to emphasize the importance of space junk. Basically, uh, defunct satellites and rocket bodies that remain in Earth's orbit. You know, those things that, like, break through and, like, threaten to kill everyone and end up just, like, landing in the middle of an ocean. Uh, so she calls this technology wasteland a robotic colonial frontier, which has significance in that it reflects human culture's relationship to space and the technological adaptations of our culture to a new environment. Whatever that means. I'm not saying that this stuff isn't important, and that a hundred years from now, we're not going to want to look back at that technology and see what it did as far as the development of American or world culture. But I think they may be going a little bit out on a limb here, calling it a colonial frontier. In anthropology, uh, frontier studies are generally used to study the relationships between cultural cores, which are usually larger settlements, and their peripheries. They're called poor core periphery relationships, or poor periphery relationships, if you get dyslexic like me. And the purpose of this is really to examine the different interaction spheres that happen when uh, cultural groups come into close physical contact or share a space with each other, basically. And a good example of this is in the American West during the frontier period, we often examine the relationships of cultural groups at certain towns, core centers, and in the West, it's mainly like European groups moving into these places and how they interact with like the Native Americans living on the periphery of their location. And maybe other cultural groups like in the West, the Chinese moved in to uh, do a lot of labor in the building up of the Western environment. So you have different cultural groups living sometimes in close quarters, but also having to interact with the periphery. And how do they deal with it as far as the use of space, as far as trade or the market uh, economy goes, or um, the way that their cultural traditions um, maybe interact or share, get shared between each other. And so this is basically the purpose of frontier studies as far as the name goes. And in outer space, I'm not really sure that that applies, unless in the future we have some alien archaeology to study as far as their interaction with our old broken satellites. Maybe then it would have something to do with frontier archaeology. But for right now, I'm not really sure. Anyway, uh, Peter Calipati of Penn State says that once these objects have ceased to fulfill their mission and been discarded, they should be considered archaeological objects, because that's pretty much what artifacts are, right? <laughs> so we should be considering new archaeological methodologies of preserving and studying them. And I agree with him. I think we should be. Um, I just think maybe not so voraciously. <laughs> anyway, um, 
Uh, Reynolds claims that political protection of these objects and interstellar archaeological sites, such as the Apollo 11 landing site, could be achieved easily by an executive order by the Obama himself, making the site a national monument, and as well as an act of Congress to pass the Tranquility-Based National Historic Landmark Act. That is, only if they can actually get Congress to pass it. And Reynolds adds that getting them to agree on this or anything these days is another story. Thank you for your political commentary, Mr. Reynolds. I'm sure that's going to do you a lot of good in getting your junky space scrap act passed. And as for the moon landing site, I'm pretty sure that stuff's still going to be up there whenever we get back up to study it, be it 50 years or a thousand. It was a highly publicized event that's still extremely clear in our collective public memory. In the meantime, let's turn our attention to some of those sites that we aren't able to study so easily, and events that we really don't know very much about. All I'm saying is that our archaeological talents are needed elsewhere, okay? But maybe the next time they're up there, they could stick a big old Made in the USA stamp on those moon artifacts. Or some astronaut crew in 3200 AD is going to get up there, and you know what they're going to be thinking? I'm not saying it's aliens, but it was aliens. Oh my god. And that's all I've got to say about space archaeology. Uh, on a side note, before we wrap up for the day, it's that time of year, guys. Um, if you are interested in getting your hands dirty this summer, you need to register for field schools. Field school registration time is upon us. Usually, if you're an undergraduate or a graduate student in archaeology, you'll be expected to do field schools during the summer. You might be set up with them through your school, or they might give you an opportunity to sign up for another field school elsewhere. But if you're not in one of those programs and you want to be involved in an archaeological dig, most of them take place in the summer. Um, they're all over the world. There's lots of websites you can go to to research what uh, field schools are available this summer and most of the time if there are slots available you have to send in an application and the fee because most places don't just let you come and do a field school for free uh, it's a whole program where they teach you a lot about archaeology and the history of wherever you are digging so there is usually a fee, and they usually, if it's someplace far away, they're not going to pay for your airfare or anything like that. So you're pretty much on your own. But if you're independently wealthy, you know, you could pretty much go dig anywhere you like. So have a gander at some of the field schools being offered where you are or someplace that you'd like to be. Uh, you can check out shovelbums.com. About.com has a really simple list. If you're into Biblical Archaeology, B-A-R, Biblical Archaeology Review, which is hard to say, uh, has an issue out this time of year that lists all of the digs in places that you might find significant to your Biblical history. Woo so check them out. You should do it. And next week, I think I want to talk about Australia. Uh, I have a love affair with that big old country continent down there. I'd spent a semester in Australia in college, and I'm not saying it was the best six months of my life, but it was the best six months of my life. 
So I've been really into Aboriginal anthropology since then, and my historical archaeology side actually is kind of obsessed with convict archaeology, so anyway, I'll probably talk about that for a little bit. It's uber exciting, and I don't know when it'll be out next because I'm going on vacation. I'm taking a long, well-deserved trip home to New York and up to Vermont for a little while, so I'll probably be at least three weeks till the next one's out, kids. Sorry to disappoint. You're just gonna have to sit there and wait with bated breath to hear your Jenny talk again. Anyway, yeah, I'm just rambling now, so I'm just gonna go. But thanks for tuning in to episode five, which I think I'm gonna call I See Dead People, because honestly, I saw a lot of dead people this week researching this episode. And if you go to my website, you will too. Check out www.jennifermcniven.com to see the blog up with this article. There's going to be lots of bog bodies on there. So enjoy it. Night, folks. I hope if I'm ever on the History Channel, like Ancient Aliens guy, I'm well known for more than just my hair and being totally crazy. Like, maybe the fact that I can pee faster than anyone I know. Or that I can sing this really fun Christmas song in Dutch. I don't know, we'll figure it out. Someday. McNiven out! <laughs>